Welcome to Eurodollar University with Jeff Snyder. My name is Emil Kalinowski. We're going to be talking about why the treasury curve has inverted, why the Eurodollar futures curve has inverted. And we're going to focus just on the monetary system. We're not going to say, well, the economy's not looking so good. That's why it's inverted. We're going to be focusing solely on measures and functions of the monetary system, a system that's in the shadows. And one specific aspect, collateral, collateral, yes. U.S. Treasury securities, maybe mortgage-backed securities, and how financial institutions use these securities to access short-term funding. If they don't have enough securities, quality securities, maybe they can't access short-term funding, then maybe they can't create money for the rest of the economy, et cetera, et cetera. Jeff, in part one, we focused on two measures very quickly. And then the big one we were focusing was on securities lending and what the Federal Reserve offers securities to dealers. And that's a, a warning. Now we're going to be talking about repurchase agreements and tri-party repo. But before we do, Jeff, maybe we should tell the audience that there's lots of different repurchase agreements and we can only get a view of a few of them or one? Yeah, the repo market isn't a single market. In fact, most of these money markets are not monolithic holes either. They're actually various spread out, you know, ad hoc relationships that happen. And most of the time we don't ever see them. Not only do we have counterparties engaging in shadow money and uh, transactions between each other, those are also spread out all throughout the world. So there's a lot of dark spaces, which is why we call this shadow money, because it literally takes place in the shadows. Now, specifically the repo market, the vast majority or the majority, there's some debate here. And I think some official sources like to say that it's maybe 50-50 and I think they're being overly generous. But to me, the majority of the repo market and majority of all of these markets really takes place between just two counterparties. Emil, you and I get together. I need some funding. I've got some security. The security I have meets your terms, meets your risk parameters. So you lend me the cash. I give you the securities or at least I give you the limited rights to sell them in case I default. And as far as anybody else in the world is concerned, they have no idea that this has happened. There's no trace of it. There's, you know, except in our individual transaction reports on our income statements and things like that. But it doesn't get reported to a government anywhere. It doesn't get reported on a tape in a marketplace. Maybe we have a custodian in between us that take that keeps track of the limited rights. But by and large, it's just two people getting together, doing a transaction, all in the, in the dead of night, no sunshine, no daylight, no nothing. This is actually the majority of the repo market. You just said maybe there's a custodian between us. Isn't that tri-party repo? We just described bi-party repo. And tri-party would be a almost, almost like, a, like an exchange, except it's just one or two banks. And what is that custodian do? It Does it match borrower and lender? Does it take care of all the back office functions and make sure that the securities and cash exchange? And then is that custodian on the hook? Are they responsible? Should anything go south with one of the two parties? Well, that's a lot that you just went over there. But yes, in our bilateral agreement, there would be a custodian, but it's more of an informal basis that maybe keeps track of the treasuries of the transaction on our individual case. But, you know, if it's just bilateral repo, 
I have to find somebody who has cash. I have to pick up the phone and call through a Rolodex or something like that. Or we know each other because we've done business with each other for a very long time. So I know I can do a repo with you. Tri-party repo is really about matching borrowers and, and lenders, right? It's a single marketplace. You think about a bazaar for cash lenders who have spare cash along with you know people who have access to securities that they can post as collateral. And so we have these custodians who do all of those things. I have a pool of lenders over here. I've got a pool of borrowers over here. I've made the borrowers post some collateral with me so I know they're good and I can match lenders and borrowers and I can put these other things all together. I can keep track of who owes what. And so I can perform these magical services to the marketplace for a small fee. And the fee isn't always just cash. It could be just information. And this is what's called tri-party repo because you have the two parties You've got the cash lender, you've got the cash borrower, the cash borrower is the securities uh, person puts up the securities. And then in between those two, you have a large custodian that, that keeps track of everything. We're going to be talking about tri-party repo data that is provided to us by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York and, and its history and whether or not undulations in this data suggested we we're in a monetary shortage. Before we go there, Jeff, if anyone knows anything about this, they'll know that the Bank of New York is the main custodian, at least in the United States, for this tri-party system. But it used to be JP Morgan as well. And they, in the last few several years, they got out of this business. Jeff, I'm here only for rumor and innuendo, but I would think this is a critically important market. And I am surprised that JP Morgan said, yeah, we don't wanna be involved in this fundamental market. Why? Why do they step back? Do you know? If you go back, and we did this before, where we talked about the Lehman Brothers. We reviewed Lehman Brothers from the perspective of private communications that the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission had uncovered. And what you found then, as you know, I think most people knew at the time who were paying attention, but what became clear is that JP Morgan's name kept coming up time and time and time again because they were the tri-party repo custodian, not because of some grand conspiracy where JP Morgan was trying to take over the world, but because as the primary tri-party repo custodian, they're the ones who knocked on the door of Bear Stearns and said, you don't have enough collateral. If you don't post it, I'm shutting you off of tri-party repo, which means you're out of business. Same thing with Lehman Brothers. JP Morgan was the one who had to tap Lehman Brothers on the shoulder and say, I need 8 million in collateral I know you don't have, but I need it tomorrow or you're done. And so after the experience of tri-party repo in 2008, you can understand why JP Morgan might've said, this just isn't worth the hassle. Not only do we at risk in case something goes wrong because we're mixing all this collateral together, we're mixing all these marketplaces together. Not only is our own business at risk, I mean, people hate us to begin with. There's, there's reputational harm that's going along with this. And so, I mean, it took them until 2017 to get out of the business because, let's face it, they can't just say we're done tomorrow because the whole system would collapse. And you got to believe there was political and uh, financial pressure from the Federal Reserve to say, look, we know you guys don't want to do this anymore, but we absolutely need you. The last thing we can handle in the early aftermath of the 2008 crisis is you shutting down entirely from tri-party repo. So it was something that had to be unwound over time. But that just goes to show that there is a systemic risk, there's a systemic issue here with tri-party repo because it is in many ways the last resort of the last resort. Okay, we're going to pull up a graph right now. 
This is data from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. It goes back to 2000, I can't see that well. What is it, 2008, all the way to present day. And we have a couple of lines on here, and by couple, I mean three. First one, collateral type, all tri-party. Next line, collateral type, U.S. Treasuries, and then mortgage-backed securities. And I would draw everyone's attention to something they may not focus on immediately, and that's Jeff identifying the six QEs. We talked about that in a previous episode. Yes, six, not four or five. Okay, Jeff, it seems as if the mortgage-backed securities, meh, you know, okay, but, but we see a few spikes, including recently in the treasury collateral type. Now, what are we looking at? What are we seeing here? Well, first of all, unfortunately, it took the 2008 crisis for the Federal Reserve Bank of New York to start collecting this data in any detail. So we don't have pre-crisis data, which really would have really helped. And I think what we probably would have seen is that mortgage bonds made up more of the collateral mix than U.S. Treasuries. And what isn't pictured on this chart is all the other types of collateral that are actually posted up. Um, There's tons, I mean, including stocks and equities that get pledged as collateral. Various haircuts are applied based on the perception of the risk and the the reliability, the liquidity of the markets that they're conducted in. But focusing in on the major type of collateral, which is mortgage bonds, MBS, and U.S. Treasuries, what you see in the post-crisis era is that during what we've identified as these dollar shortage collateral scarcity periods, you tend to see that the tri-party repo market prefers, maybe even demands, more exclusively U.S. Treasury collateral, which makes sense because at the same time, you're taking in more U.S. Treasury collateral, you're probably not taking in some of the riskier forms of collateral because you can't, you don't want to, you're rejecting those, you become risk averse. And the part that we don't see that we really would like to see is bilateral repo. So that the repo that takes place in the dark, we can kind of guess, maybe reasonably surmise that as tri-party repo volume rises during these deflationary periods, as we just talked about, as U.S. Treasury collateral backs that rise in volume, it may be because bilateral relationships are breaking down and borrowers are being forced or herded onto the tri-party system because they have nowhere else to go. And they have to get to the tri-party system using U.S. Treasuries, which is one reason why U.S. Treasury prices might be relatively, I don't want to say overvalued, but trading at a premium or priced at a premium than where they would otherwise be. If we look at more recent data and just focus on the U.S. Treasury type collateral, we have seen an increase starting in March 2021 that would make GameStop stock blush. It is straight up, Jeff. What does that mean? Since March 2021, what are we seeing here? It looks troubling, concerning. It look, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's an enormous spike in tri-party repo. The volume is over a trillion. And I think part of what you're seeing there is, number one, uh, what we saw in the reverse repo at the Fed, which is the, uh, you know, the lack of opportunity elsewhere. And so that to me, the volume part of it isn't the most significant issue here. Although there is, I mean, because we don't have data and bilateral repo, we can't put these things together. We're sort of guessing, we're sort of spitballing, we're sort of speculating on whether or not, does that mean there was an enormous breakdown in bilateral repo that forced everybody in the tri-party system? I don't think it's that much, but that's certainly a possibility, especially consider what I think is the most important part of that chart is 
as the repo volume has spiked, it is 100% entirely U.S. Treasury collateral. There is no, almost nothing. In fact, mortgage bond collateral, I believe, has fallen at the same time. Mm-hmm. So why is this massive marketplace, this huge spike, what's going, we don't know what's going on in bilateral repo, but why is it demanding exclusively U.S. Treasury collateral at a time when, let's, let's also remember, Janet Yellen's Treasury Department was restricting especially the supply of T-bills. So everybody, you know, all these indications, put these together, everybody seems to be treasuries, 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 treasuries. A little bit more data we received from the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The number of observations and the number of repos, what do those two variables mean? And then we'll look at their relationship to each other, which I think is the key chart that we want to focus on at the rest of this show. What do the two variables mean? When you get into tri-party repo, it's not a single one-for-one transaction. You're funding a portfolio, so you have a menu of options, you have a menu of potential choices that you can make. So if I engage in a repo with you, Emil, I may pledge a couple different types of collateral for that one single repo. So the number of repos is the transaction that we just did, and the number of observations are how many different collateral types I've put up. So if we have a single repo where I've done I put up, you know, mortgage bonds as well as treasuries, as well as junk collateral or junk corporates. That would be one repo with three observations. So what the observations tell us is about the different variety of collateral types that are being put up in tripartite repo per repo. Would it be fair to say that during reflations, monetary reflations, economic recovery, more types of collateral are acceptable? I will accept your Argentinian government bond. I will accept your emerging market corporate bond or junk bond and some advanced economy as well as mortgage-backed securities, U.S. treasuries. I'll accept stocks, whatever. That's, I'm feeling good about it. But when things get tight, when I see something I'm concerned about, I'm going to start accepting fewer varieties. It's exactly because remember, because this is money is all about yes. balance sheet capacity, it's about risk aversion or risk taking. And if you're doing, if we're in reflation where balance sheets are modestly expanding, that means dealers are going to be relatively, they'll be okay taking on some risks, which also means I'm going to accept some funkier collateral that I might not have a couple of years ago or a couple months ago. I'm starting to be more optimistic. So sure, bring me that junk. I'll take it. And what we see in the repo data is during these reflationary periods, I mean, it's, it's almost too exact. During these reflationary periods, the number of observations per repo expands, which is more collateral types are being accepted per repo transaction, which tells us that dealers are accepting, not just the tripartite repo custodian, but the dealers on the other side of the repo market are accepting a wider variety of collateral because they're in a risk-taking mood. Conversely, or inversely, when they become risk averse, when dollars become short in the global economy, consistent with that and and coincident to that, we see dealers tend to accept fewer, not not necessarily fewer, but they don't expand the the, the variety of clouds that they're taking. And there is some indication of running home to treasuries as well, because the number of, of observations per repo does dip a little bit, which indicates that, you know, again, risk aversion not really wanting to take the riskier types of collateral, more exclusively drawn toward U.S. Treasury. And we see that in the graph as you were talking, Jeff. We had that dollar shortage 
Number two, you know what? I'm going to stop saying dollar shortage, Jeff. I think we, because it makes our, we assume that our audience is keeping up. It's not really a dollar shortage. It's a money shortage. It's a credit and collateral shortage, not a U.S. dollar shortage. So a credit and collateral shortage, number two in Europe. And then we had the reflation, which in the financial media at the time was known as global growth. And you could see that increase per transaction, right? Then euro dollar number three, and then globally synchronized growth. The third reflation, euro dollar four sideways to down. And then I'm going to, what should, have we christened the fourth reflation? I'm going to say reopening. What do you think, Jeff? I like, I think that's probably the right term is reopening reflation. So we had, what are you, what I'm going to say <laughs> dribbling <laughs> in meh. It had a, we've talked about this many times of how underwhelming it really is. And the consumer price index has gotten everybody convinced into believing that it was over red hot. It's massive. When in actual monetary terms, it's like it's hard for us to even say it was a reflationary period because in a lot of ways it doesn't look like it was. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Look, ladies and gentlemen, look at that chart. Global growth, globally synchronized growth. And then look at our reflation, reopening, re- reopening reflation right now. It's sideways. And then I guess more recently right now, Jeff, what are we seeing that suggests a monetary reason for the curve inversion? More of a kind of a sideways. Sideways to lower, which is, again, number of repos or number of observations per repo, which goes back to that chart we started with, which is the tri-party repo market for reasons that we can't say from the data itself. But for whatever the reasons they are, the tri-party repo market has demanded exclusively U.S. Treasury collateral. And then that's where we come in and put all these pieces together to try to give ourselves a comprehensive story about why that must be. And the why that must be is not inflationary currency. It's the exact opposite. Jeff, we received a question, lots of questions on Twitter and in YouTube comments. I'm going to ask you one of them right now as we wrap up the show. This one comes from the Happy Hawaiian on Twitter, at TH, because we can't afford the E. TH Happy Hawaiian. And here's what he asked. I believe it's a he, if I remember correctly. Quote, could the lack of upward slope at the long end simply be the market coming to terms with the Fed will act to cap long-term rates? In other words, financial repression. And this was about your quote about the sevens and the tens tenors, U.S. Treasury curve inversion. Yeah, and I think we've talked about yield caps and the fact that the Fed doesn't actually control the yield curve all that much. I think it's a valid concern, not so much in terms of reading the yield curve and the signal it's sending, but how policymakers might eventually respond, not necessarily in terms of yield caps, though I think at some point that might be something to discuss, but really, you know, thinking about ways in which they can correct a system that continues to defy their what they want to really happen, you know, financial repression in certain ways. I know that's something you talk about a lot, Emil, and something I don't want to say near and dear to your heart because it's not something you, you argue for, but you know a lot about. And I would say, all I would say is that the yield curve itself doesn't really fundamentally respond to that kind of repression, as we said, in, gone over time and time again. The yield, the bond market is its own animal that won't be caged, especially by the uh, the inept corruption of the Federal Reserve. At this last point there, Jeff, yes, exactly. The Federal Reserve will have nothing to do with financial repression. It all comes from the politicians, Congress 
and the executive branch. That's where you'll be seeing the signs of wage controls, price controls, uh, controls on who can issue equity or borrow and whether or not you can take money out, how much interest you're allowed to be paid. That's all going to be legal, regulatory. Look there and they'll be using the Fed and other central banks. Which protests you donate to? All sorts of things. I mean, there's any number of reasons yes. that have just, they've only proliferated at times. So I don't, you know, again, going back to the, just briefly answering the question, I don't think the yield curve is responding to that type of a of a signal. It's it's far more, as we just said, I think making a, a very good deflationary money case in the form of a shortage of collateral and how that plays into growth and inflation expectations, which are the sole drivers of long-term yield. One more question, Jeff. From Twitter again, Gus rhymes with bus, at Gus rhymes with B1. Can a supply shock lead to the creation of new money? If Russia forces a repricing of oil, food, metals, and other hard commodities, does fiscal and monetary work together in other countries to create the new money required to buy those more expensive products, causing real inflation? So... It's not really a supply shock. It's the response to the supply shock that would create the new money. Isn't that right, Jeff? Yeah, I, I think I know where they're coming from, right? Because if the price go, of oil goes up, then other countries have to pay a higher price for it. Can't they just print the money? Therefore, the price of oil goes up. That leads to the money printing to pay for the commodities. And I think the answer is no, because what ends up happening is the countries end up not printing money, but taking money from other purposes that would that to, to pay for higher oil prices that they would use in other fashion. So they're not actually printing money, they're redistributing, which is essentially the demand destruction story, which I believe is part of the reason why curves are so crazy at the moment, so, so inverted and flat, is because we see not just the hints of demand destruction around the world, we're actually starting to get really solid indications of it, not just in terms of macroeconomic considerations, but in the marketplace, in collateral and money itself. So yeah, I mean, the idea is there, you know, if we have to pay for higher prices, why not just print more money? When I think in reality and in practice, the way it actually happens is very different. And it would have to be a tremendous response, right? That's what we always talk about. Yes, the Federal Reserve is printing money, trillions, but what we don't see is all the money that's being drained away by the private system. So we would have this demand destruction, destruction of money from in the private system from the private from the supply shock yes and then the creation of money and how do you balance the two i would look to france for leadership in this area i just saw a new story where they were saying that they're going to extend and enhance create new some of those loans that they did during the pandemic the government guaranteed privately issued loans as well as furloughs and that sort of thing so Look to France for this sort of action and whether or not it'll work and to what degree. Jeff, that's it for me and the audience. Anything else you want to say before we sign off? No, that's it. You know, we live in very interesting times. And as we've been saying for over a year now, again, Fedwire, Fedwire, why does that matter so much? Ever since February last year, it's been building and building and building. These inversions, the flattening, all that stuff, they've been coming, they've been going only in one direction. And so that direction, here we are, the first rate hike from the Federal Reserve, supposedly the cycle, and nothing has changed. Thank you very much, Jeff. I appreciate it. I'll talk to you again soon. All right. Take care, Emil. <laughs>